The following message has been brought to you by Trinity Baptist Church. For more information, visit us on the web at trinitybc.org. Welcome to our midweek Bible study. Glad you've come out to worship the Lord together in song and prayer as we've just had a time of prayer and now uh, in Bible study. I know most of you have been with us for a number of weeks as we've been walking through the Old Testament scriptures, uh, specifically the prophets. Uh, a portion of God's Word that is often ignored, uh, a portion of God's Word that even when we read individually, sometimes it's hard to navigate our way through it, not knowing the historical context and struggling to uh, interpret it and apply it in our lives. Um, I hope you found it beneficial as we have studied it in light of the history of Israel and, and as we have applied it, knowing even Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that it's written for our admonition upon whom the end of the ages have come. And we'll refer to that verse later this evening. But upon whom the end of the ages have come, all of God's Word is profitable to us, and we, we learn of God. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Uh, we see, even in the uniqueness of what we're looking at, a commonality all through the Word of God, of God's goodness, His grace, His righteousness, His call to repent and believe upon Him. Uh, things that are true as much now as they were then. And so I hope you have found it profitable. I know there's some of you I've, I've met even that are uh, first time with us this evening. If you would, open your Bible up, all of you, to Joel. And I want to give a very general overview of where we are in the book of Joel. And, and then dive in and look to a, a larger portion of Scripture in some regard. But if you've been with us through the first couple of weeks that we've looked at this book, it's a little, it kind of brings up these same themes that we are uh, we've already examined. And when you think of the book of Joel, what I want you to think of is the day of the Lord. Uh, the day of the Lord. Uh, what we saw in chapter 1 is the book begins, and we really don't know much about the prophet Joel. We don't know even the time frame that he lived for sure. Uh, some people put this after the Babylonian captivity. Most, in a traditional view, would be that it was sometime before the Babylonian captivity. And when I say Babylonian captivity, what I mean by that, if you're not familiar with that, is when the Babylonians come in and take uh, all the land uh, or, or the Israelites that are left in Judah back into uh, Babylon to be slaves. They wipe out the, the city of Jerusalem. It was a judgment God brought upon His people because of their sin, because of their hard-heartedness towards God. And even in this era, when Joel is writing, we'll see Joel is, is calling them to see the sinfulness of their sin and repent over it. Uh, that the people of God very quickly entered into sin, very quickly disregarded the law of God that He had given, very quickly turned to the idols of the people that were all around them. And even though God had so graciously brought them into that promised land, uh, not very many generations go by before the people of God are acting just like the lost pagans around them. And God brings the prophets to speak into their lives, uh, to speak into the nation, to... Uh, call the people back to himself. And so I believe Joel was written early on uh, and is one of the first of the minor prophets. And Joel is doing just that. He's calling the people back to God, uh, calling them to wake up to how far they've drifted away from the Lord, to wake up to the sinfulness of their sin. And so chapter 1 began by a description of a really crazy event that happened in Joel's day. Uh, a swarm of locusts, even a plague it could be called of locusts, came into the promised land and, and ransacked, ransacked the land, ate everything that was of 
any nourishment, not only to the humans living there, but even to the livestock it speaks of, all the animals starving to death. A great famine had struck the land, unlike anyone had ever lived through before. And Joel calls them in the misery of their suffering because of this disaster that's occurred to realize in all suffering, God is calling us to realize how broken and messed up we are. How broken and messed up this world is. How much we really need a new heaven and a new earth. How much we need redemption and salvation and restoration. How much we really need repentance. And so chapter 1 is a description very poetically of this land being ransacked by uh, locusts of Israel now being called to turn from their sin, to realize it's an offense against God, and and to, to repent, to find that God is gracious and God is merciful. And perhaps we'll... Uh, lament of the, uh, or relent rather, of the, the judgment that he was pouring out upon them through this uh, locust invasion. Chapter 2 carries that same theme, but all of a sudden the locusts are being presented as a great army. And the time frame shifts from something that had just happened to something that's going to happen in the future. And, and it, it, you go to chapter 2 and just read verse 1. It says, Blow the trumpet in Zion and sound the alarm in the holy mountain that all the inhabitants of the land tremble. And he says, For the day of the Lord is coming. And chapter 2, he takes this imagery of that disaster that had occurred of the locusts coming in and demolishing everything. And he presents very poetically the day of the Lord that is to come. And we're going to talk a lot more about that again tonight. What is this day of the Lord? But, but the locusts turn into an invading army that, that brings the judgment of God upon the wickedness of this world, if you want to think of it that way. And so chapter 2 is a very poetic description of that, of the judgment that will come upon the wicked, but also of the restoration that will come upon the righteous, upon those that are following the Lord. And, and there is a beautiful call of God for His people to repent in verses 12 and 13. I want to read that. Now therefore, says the Lord, turn to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, with mourning. So rend your heart and not your garments. Don't just give a public display of, yeah, I'm following the Lord. I went down at an altar call or I got dunked in the baptistry. He's saying, truly rend your heart before me. Like truly come to a place of owning up to your actions and your sin before God and be broken in your heart over it before God and, and turn to Him lamenting over your sinfulness. Return to the Lord, your God, for He is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and of great kindness. And He relents to forgive you. He's a God who delights in forgiveness. And my goodness, do we even know it more so this side of the cross that our God, who's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, the God who is the God of Joel, is the God who is the God of us, Today, he's a God who delights in the forgiveness of sinners. And he calls out, as we'll see even tonight, for all of us, especially those of us who never have, uh, to own up to our sin. To come to a place in our life where we grieve and mourn and even weep over our sin. And turn to him in repentance and find his grace. And find his mercy there waiting for the broken and the contrite heart. The sinner who repents, God lavishly forgives Not because of us, uh, but because of His goodness, His kindness, His grace, His mercy. And so, uh, Joel calls them to repentance in light of the future judgment that is to come. 
And then intermixed in the middle there is a promise of restoration. We won't read it because he'll highlight that again at the end of chapter 3 that we are going to look to. I want to pick up now reading in verse 28 of chapter 2. And we're going to read through the rest of the book. And it shall come to pass afterward, this is dealing with that day of the Lord he's describing, that I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men, old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. And also my men servants and my maid servants, I will pour out my Spirit in those days. And I will show wonders in the heavens and in the earth. Blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem there shall be deliverance, as the Lord has said among the remnant whom the Lord calls. For behold, in those days and at that time when I bring back the captives of Judah and Jerusalem, I will also gather all nations Bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. They have also divided up my land. They have cast lots for my people, have given a boy of payment for a harlot, and sold a girl for wine that they may drink. Indeed, what have you to do with me, O Tyre and Sidon, and all the coasts of Philistia? Will you retaliate against me? But if you retaliate against me swiftly and speedily, I will return your retaliation upon your own head, because you have taken my silver and my gold and have carried into your temples my prized possessions. Also, the people of Judah and the people of Jerusalem you have sold to the Greeks, that you may remove them far from their borders. Behold, I will raise them out of the place to which you have sold them and will return your retaliation upon your own head. I will sell your sons and daughters into the hand of the people of Judah, and they will sell them into the Sabians to a people far off, for the Lord has spoken. Proclaim this among the nations, all the nations at war against God. Proclaim this to them. Prepare for war. Wake up the mighty man. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Assemble and come, all you nations, and gather together all around. Cause your mighty ones to go down there, O Lord. Let the nations be awakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down, for the winepress is full, the vats overflow. For their wickedness is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon will grow dark, and the stars will diminish in their brightness. The Lord also will roar from Zion and utter His voice from Jerusalem. The heavens and the earth will shake, but the Lord will be a shelter for His people and the strength of the children of Israel. For you shall know that I am the Lord your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then Jerusalem shall be holy and no aliens, no foreigners shall ever pass through her again. And it will come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drip with new wine, and the hills shall flow with milk, and all the brooks of Judah shall be flooded with water. And, fountain, and a fountain shall flow from the house of the Lord, and water in the valley of Acacia. 
Egypt shall be a desolation, and Edom a desolate wilderness, because the violence against the people of Judah, for they have shed innocent blood in their land. But Judah shall abide forever, and Jerusalem from generation to generation. For I will acquit them of the guilt of bloodshed, whom I had not acquitted. For the Lord dwells in Zion. Now I want to do a quick overview over what we just read, and then bring it up into our day and age, hopefully. Uh, So first, just a quick overview as we we think of the day of the Lord. Uh, Realize the call of Joel. When you think of the book of Joel, the the overarching theme is the day of the Lord, and to word it applicationally would be worded this way. We need to repent because the day of the Lord is near. The, The day of the Lord is at hand. Joel says, it's it's coming. The day of the Lord is approaching fast. Therefore, in light of that that coming day of the Lord that will be occurring, that's going to happen, the call upon them there and the call upon us even now is we need to turn to the the Lord while there's yet time, while there's still opportunity. Repent, for the day of the Lord is at hand. And now we've got to answer that question again that we examined a little bit last week. What is the day of the Lord? Now, if the day of the Lord is at hand, and he's describing here the day of the Lord, what, do we, what ought we think of when we think of this day of the Lord that Joel is writing about? I told you last week, and I'll tell you again this week, when you think of the day of the Lord, I want you to think of that era, that day, that time frame, in which the righteous, sovereign God manifests himself. He makes himself known in his rule, and in his might, and in his holiness. And so, we think of life even in the here and now, or life, let's go back then, where there were many nations living as if the God of Israel was not a God at all. Many nations living, worshiping pagan gods that they had created, idols that were the works of their hands. Even the people of God in in this era were living just as the, the pagans were living, with no real fear of the one true living God. It was as if God was was far off and distant, even though he wasn't. He wasn't manifesting his sovereign reign and rule and righteousness as he will in the day of the Lord. That when the day of the Lord comes, that isn't a time frame where God will make himself known. And even as he says in verse 17, so shall you know that I am the Lord your God. There will be no debating whether God exists or not. There will be no living as if God does not exist. In this day and age, when the day of the Lord comes, God will manifest Himself. And He will be known. And He's going to be known through two different ways. One's going to be the judgment of the wicked, as half of that chapter describes. And then the other is going to be, He'll be known by the restoration of His people, the restoration of the righteous, the restoration of the repentant, I would call them, unless you think righteous means we're good in and of ourselves. He's going to be known by the judgment He pours out upon wicked, uh, the wicked and wickedness, sin. And He's going to be known in that day of the Lord by the work of restoring His people and making of them what He saves them to be, what they ought to be. And that's what's described here in the book of Joel. If you walk back through it, and we won't look at all of it again, 
But, but you'll see verses 1 through 16, the first half of verse 16, it is all a description of the judgment that God will pour out upon the nations that, that have never turned to Him. All the people who are living in sin and wickedness and, and, and even the evil deeds that are described here, the uh, attacks that they brought against God's people um, unjustly, um, the way they took and stole of the uh, temple gold and silver, the things that belong to the Lord, what is uh, most grotesque even described here. Uh, verse 3, they have cast lots for my people and have given a boy as payment for a harlot and sold a girl for wine that they may drink, even human trafficking, um, a grave offense in the eyes of God, every person being created in the image of God, uh, being loved of, of, of God, and, and they treating uh, boys and girls as if they're just bartering chips for their wine and for the, the harlot. And God says, no judgment will come. But in the day of the Lord, when that day comes, there is a day of reckoning. There is a day of justice. You know, we look at things that happen even in our day and age, and you think of human trafficking, and you think of all the wickedness that's done, and all the suffering because of the wickedness of people. And you look at it and you think, like, is, is God ever going to make it right? Is God ever going to judge? Because right now it seems like people can do wickedness and just continue on in it and, and nothing ever happens unless by some chance they get caught by a, a government that will punish them. But many, many don't have that sort of government living in countries across the world. And, and also those that do often don't get caught. And you realize all the while God sees been said that God, God has some books and He's got a bottle. God's got some books in which have written every injustice that's ever occurred, every, every wrongdoing, every wicked action that any and every man and woman has ever committed. God sees it and God knows it and His heart is grieved by it. And, and get this, His holiness, His righteous indignation is, 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 is sparked by it. There, there is within the righteousness of God the justice of God, a, a wrath towards sinners and those wicked deeds and actions. It demands justice, and rightly so. The, the wicked deserve punishment. And Joel is saying here, the day of the Lord will come. That there is coming a day where God will manifest Himself in His righteous holiness, and He will bring a judgment for every record of wrong that He's ever recorded. And then that he's got a bottle, and that's taken from Psalm. Uh, I forget the, where, where it's found. It's in the Psalms where it says that God bottles up all of our tears. That there's never a tear that is shed, especially by the people of God. That God's heart has not been grieved by. And that God has not bottled up the, the imagery there of, of bottling tears as they fall down uh, the face of His people, of His children. That, that He will... He will judge. And He will make every wrong right. And He will bring a great judgment upon all the, the nations of the land. And, and understand this written then, applying to all of them, 
applies to every person even here this evening that does not that is not a child of God, that's not of the, the people of God, that's lost, that's that's against God, that's living however you, you want to live, doing whatever you want to do, not not knowing him, that judgment will include you. God will judge the wicked. All will stand accountable before Him. Acts 17 and 31, verse 31, it says, God has appointed a day on which He will judge the world in righteousness. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. All stand accountable before holy God in this day of the Lord that will come at that second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, God will judge the wicked. He will manifest Himself through the judgment that He pours out upon sin and upon sinners. It's interesting in verse 10, we're we're so familiar of the imagery when Jesus comes back of turning swords into plowshares, of of turning those weapons of war into instruments of of farming, of agriculture. From Isaiah, where it's a description of war turning to peace, that's for the people of God. But, But here's a description for those that are against God, gathering together in this valley of Jehoshaphat. We'll talk about that in a moment. But they're gathering together to wage war against God as if they can overthrow God Almighty. And why would they not at the end feel the same way they've lived their entire life as if they've lived their whole life believing God doesn't exist, believing they are more of an authority over their life than God Himself is. This is just imagery describing that that final rebellious heart against the Lord, even as they come to this day of judgment in this valley of Jehoshaphat. He's saying, turn your, your instruments of agriculture into warfare and come stand before Me. A little bit of sarcasm in this, because He says there um, in, in the end of verse 12, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Uh, Joel is very poetic. He uses a lot of imagery. And if you can just imagine this imagery, the Valley of Jehoshaphat. We don't really know if that's a real place or where that was. In the 4th century, it got referenced as being the uh, Kidron Valley. And so many equate it to that place. But reality is, Joel might have just used that word because Jehoshaphat means God has judged. That's what that name means. The valley that, where God has judged. The valley as it's referred to even in the next verse is the valley of decision. Um, the decision God makes, not us. So whether that's really speaking of this valley outside of Jerusalem or whether this is just poetic imagery, a description of, of the nations gathering before God, the imagery is you picture the millions and millions gathering with their, their swords and their spears that they've, they've somehow manufactured to, to fight and rage even as they have all of their life against God, against God's authority over their life. And God all the while, it says, is, is seated. He's seated down. He's not standing as if He's got a wage a warfare to battle them. It's the power of His Word. Flick them off like we flick a bug off some of the imagery in the prophets say of God and His power to, to bring judgment. He's, he's, he's seated, seated down upon His throne. And He's there calling the nations before Him in this valley of decision. Now, now we often maybe have wrongly heard a very evangelistic message about being in the valley of decision and you need to choose. Are you going to serve God or are you going to serve yourself? And, and that's a wrong view of the valley of decision as we read it here. The valley of decision isn't about your decision. The valley of decision is all about God's decision as He's bringing the judgment upon the wicked. He is the one who is the judge 
of all the universe. He is the one who has called the nations, even as they rage and war before Him, to this place where they will be wakened to come to this valley of Jehoshaphat, this valley of decision where God will bring the judgment down upon them. The wine press is full. The vats overflow for their wickedness is great. It's a picture of God's patience with humanity running out. That God is keeping a record of every wrong and that every injustice and every wicked act that mankind commits is a grievous offense before a holy God. And there will come a day where His patience expires. And He says enough is enough. And He comes and He will finally make all things right. And a part of making things right is doing away with all that is wrong, including all of those who are wrong, who do not repent, who have not turned to the Lord. And so there will be a day of great judgment. The day of the Lord will be a time of great judgment for the wicked, for the nations, for all who have not turned to Him. Verse 16b, though, is a transition. But, but, but the Lord will be a shelter for His people. In the midst of a description of all of His wrath and judgment being poured out upon humanity for their wickedness, we have this sharp turn to God's relationship to His people, to those who who turn to Him. And it says, but the Lord will be a shelter, a shelter for His people. It will be the strength of the children of Israel. And it goes on as we read to describe the restoration, uh, even the uh, restoration of the land for His people where, where they will live in abundance and no longer be dealing with the, the enemy nations of this world, no longer be dealing with the wickedness even of this life and of this world. That God will bless His people and restore them and renew them. I love the promise of Chapter 2 and verse 25. I told you to mark it last week. I want to read it again just in case you weren't there. Such a beautiful promise of God for His people. So I will restore to you the years that the swarming locust has eaten. All that the judgment of sin in this life has taken, God is someday going to restore. All that you can think of even in your life that sin has taken and scarred and marred brokenness of this world. The goodness and grace and kindness of God that we don't deserve. Someday, on that day of the Lord, He will restore that for His people, for Israel, and even for us, those who have been grafted in this side of the cross into these promises that God has given. What a, a beautiful day it will be for those that know Him. What a horrible day. A terrible day it will be for those who do not know Him. And as that was true then for them, we realize that's true now for us, for me, for you. That day of the Lord will be an awesome, beautiful day for all of us who know Him. All of us who are His children. That day, for those that don't know Him, there is a day of reckoning. There is a day of judgment. There is a day of accountability. The day of the Lord will not be a glorious day for the wicked will be a day of, of great, great judgment. Even a judgment leading to eternal judgment and eternal damnation according to the book of Revelation. And so the call of Joel is to repent for the day of the Lord is coming. 
But notice, secondly, there's also a call to repent. Because the last days are now. We're in the last days. And in a way, we're even in the... In a way, a small way, we're even partly in the day of the Lord. And you're saying, what do I mean by this? Acts chapter 2. The day of Pentecost comes. In Acts chapter 2, the... All the disciples, the apostles, the Holy Spirit comes upon them. They speak in tongues, if you remember this, in Acts chapter 2. And, and other people heard them speaking in a foreign, in their, their native tongue that were coming from foreign language areas that, that were gathered there in Jerusalem. And the Gospel was being proclaimed that Jesus truly is the Messiah, the Christ, the Son of God. Salvations by faith in Him. And, and the people were confused and confounded, conflicted even at how are these backwoods Galileans able to speak in our native tongue and, and I'm hearing them and how do they have such a great knowledge of spiritual things. In Peter, in Acts chapter 2, we have a sermon recorded by him. And in this sermon, this speech he delivers before the crowd that had gathered, Notice in chapter 2, verse 16, it says, as Peter is speaking, go back to verse 14, but Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk as you suppose, since it's only the third hour of the day. That was one of their guesses. Well, these men are just drunk, like that makes any sense, a drunk man speaking in a language they don't know. Uh, But this is what was spoken by the prophet who? Joel. And then he quotes Joel chapter 2 in verses 28 through 32. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. He he quotes exactly what's written there in the, the book of Joel, going all the way down to, Then whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It says, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth. A man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know, him being delivered by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands and have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. He goes on, go to verse 32, This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He poured out this which you now see and hear. And he goes on, go to verse 36, Therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. And so he quotes from Joel, who's talking about the final day of the Lord as being somewhat, some way, some shape, some form fulfilled in Acts chapter 2 when the Spirit of God comes upon the apostles to proclaim Jesus Christ truly is Lord and Savior. I know I've been confused and confusing and trying to bring clarity when we walk through the Old Testament at what's happening. And even... I mean, even within conservative Bible scholarship today, there's some differing views on how all of this unfolds. And so I've thought long and hard at how to best illustrate this for us tonight. And so follow along with me as I have got some illustrations. First up, 
cross of Jesus Christ, first coming, Jesus dies upon a cross, is buried and raised again. This has all happened now as we look back this side of the cross and see it. That's my red Play-Doh I'm going to have up here. We're breaking. I've always wanted to play with Play-Doh in church since I was a little, doing it as a little kid to stay entertained as some of your kids might do on Sunday morning. So, so red Play-Doh, right here, red lump of clay goes with the cross. That is representative of the cross of, of Christ, His first coming. Now there is coming a day that Jesus will return and He will create a new heaven and a new earth. He will make all things new. There will be a final resurrection and a final judgment, an eternal new heaven, new earth, and an eternal damnation in the lake of fire. That's at the end, and we will... Let's do yellow for that one. We're going to do yellow Play-Doh to represent the final new heaven, new earth, Jesus' second coming. Those two events... Okay, we now are for sure in the middle of those two events. Jesus' first coming has already happened. The second coming is yet to come. This is universally agreed with by all Bible-believing Christians. The Baptist Faith and Message 2000, if you read it, it doesn't go much further than this, honestly. Because once we get past this, we get into a deeper, a deeper area of Bible study regarding end times and how things are going to unfold that even within the same congregation, we can disagree upon. But we've got to have these two in common because these are clearly defined that there is a, a, a Jesus has come and died upon the cross for our sins, buried and raised again, and we are now this side of His first coming, and there is a day that Jesus is coming again. And when He comes, He will for sure make all things new. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. There will be a final judgment. There will be a redemption and restoration of, of the repentant, of those that know Him, to eternal glory. Okay, those we, we know for sure. I also believe, as many of you would, this is all I had in my office, so we're going to use this to represent the Millennial Kingdom. I believe there's actually a thousand-year period when just before the new heaven and new earth that follows when Jesus has returned, His second coming. Millennial Kingdom is going to be a thousand-year rule and reign of Christ on this earth where He fulfills, in a very literal fashion, a lot of these promises that He has made to ethnic Israel. And why do I believe that? Well, Romans chapter 11, where when the time of the fullness of the Gentiles has come, um, there will be a, a restoration of ethnic Israel. Is the only way that I can read Romans chapter 11. Roman, uh, uh, Revelation uh, 19, 20, 21, that whole series, Revelation 20 even, describing this millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ as a, a thousand-year period. Some take that as a, a poetic description, as a figurative description for meaning an extended period of time that may even be the church age where Jesus is ruling and reigning through His people within the church. You, you may, there's probably a few in here that take that view. It's a, it's a view within church history that is very well founded and a lot of good believers have believed it. A lot of great preachers have believed that view. And so again, these are areas when we get into this millennial kingdom and how all this plays out with ethnic Israel and the church that we can agree to disagree even within the same body of believers, but at the same time, we all have our views, and I've got my view, and I'm going to teach it from a certain perspective, which, would, which will be, I believe there is a, a thousand-year period before a final resurrection and before a final judgment of uh, new heaven and new earth that, that Jesus will reign in an earthly fashion from Jerusalem, an earthly restoration of even the promised land and the covenant promises to ethnic Israel that will be fulfilled. 
So I'm going to make that be represented by green Play-Doh. So it's still of the earth. It's still this earth, just Christ's rule and reign of uh, rod of iron, as it says. Uh, during that era, that thousand-year kingdom that he establishes ruling and reigning. Now, when we read the Old Testament, let's just start with what's for sure, no matter what your view is of end times. We are in between the first and second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We see these two events separately, easily, because we're in between them. We know he's came, and we believe he's coming. When we were this side of the cross, where Joel and all the Old Testament writers were writing, you realize that they did not look forward. As they looked forward, even under the inspiration God gave them to write the things that they wrote, as they were writing, they did not see a first and second coming. What they saw was, my wife hates when the kids do this, so this is actually a a, a double thrill of playing with Play-Doh and making my wife mad that I'm mixing the kids' Play-Dohs together. Um, what, what, what they saw, get that little more there, they saw and they described it as one coming. And so even as we read, the, like Isaiah that we were studying through, and, and other passages that deal with the, the restoration and the judgment of God, the, the day of the Lord even as we're talking about, they looked forward and saw one event, and even as they're writing, they would describe things together that we now in the middle separate out and say, well, that verse is even split halfway where this part was fulfilled in the first coming when Jesus died upon the cross, and there is yet to be a greater fulfillment at the end time when Jesus comes. We, we see it as separate in the middle of the two, but as they wrote it, and as they saw it this side of the cross, they described it as one event. And so it can be a little confusing as you read it, and you see it so mixed together, you're thinking like, well, wait a second, this is talking about ruling and reigning, and this is talking about suffering, and they're like right by one another, and then it goes back to ruling and reigning, and then it goes to suffering. They struggled to understand the the aspects of Jesus' work, of the Christ's work, who will redeem and restore, who will also judge and rule and reign, who will bear the iniquity of His people and bear the punishment even that's uh, given to them by by God, by His stripes were healed, and then at the same time He's going to be the Prince of Peace and He's going to rule and reign and judge the wicked. They struggled to see the distinction between the first and second coming. We, now in the middle, read the Old Testament written back then And we can more clearly define, oh, well, this was first coming fulfillment, and these parts of it are yet to to happen. Now, if you hold to a future millennial kingdom, you get to throw one more lump of clay in the mix. Because the millennial kingdom is is also an era in which these covenantal promises of God and many of these prophecies of restoration will be fulfilled. And so now I've got, as I'm reading the book of Joel, describing this day of the Lord, I I would look at it and part of the way I would apply it to first coming millennial kingdom and new heaven, new earth, is one big lump of clay, as Joel saw it. And and as he's writing, even where he speaks of the Holy Spirit coming and the... um, 
what we read there that Acts that Peter quotes, I believe what Peter is doing is he's seeing it as the same. He, he's saying that there is a sense in which, as Joel is writing, he's talking about what Jesus has already done. That the day of the Lord, even, has already in a way began through the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. He has inaugurated the kingdom. He's began it through through the work that He accomplished in His death, burial, and resurrection. When you think about the promise of salvation and the promise of deliverance that will come through Zion, that's not going to be accomplished then and there apart from what was accomplished here. It's all based upon this first coming of Jesus where He gives His life a ransom for the, the sins of His people, where, where He bears that judgment even of God that is poured out, rightly due upon the wicked, that the kingdom has then inaugurated. There is a sense in which the day of the Lord has come in some fashion through Jesus' coming, and yet we know Peter and Paul even, and other writings, say, no, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The day of the Lord is a future event where the full manifestation of what God accomplished here will be fully seen here. We, we don't see the day of the Lord yet like we'll see it in this day and age. In this day and age, we will God will manifest His gracious kindness to His people and His righteous judgment upon the wicked. We, we see it began here and we see it poured out here, but we will all know it, righteous and wicked, repentant and unrepentant, in that new heaven and in that new earth. And then you throw in this uh, millennial kingdom and it just adds a little bit more of a complicated layer to say, well, my goodness, some of these promises, prophecies are pointing here and some are pointing there. And you know what? With some of them, they're actually pointing to all three and describing all three as is what Paul or Peter quotes in Acts chapter 2. It's really, I think, there's a greater fulfillment of it yet to come before the millennial kingdom and yet in part as a pre as a, a pretaste even of what is yet to come before Jesus' second coming. It happened in His first coming, after His first coming too. And so is it confusing? Yeah. Do Christians that believe the Bible struggle to say, well, goodness, I kind of don't see the millennial kingdom as being this era of earthly reign of Jesus and it's really His reign through the church and, and they'll throw in even the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 and are there different ways to see this? Yeah, there are. Do we need to split fellowship and fight over our particular view of end times? No, if we've got these right, we're okay. But we better have these right because these are the obvious, undebatable things within God's Word. But can I have our particular view that I hold to? I do and I will and I am because I see it as this. And so it is a bit confusing and it is a little bit difficult as we walk through some of these things to say, well, goodness, is that talking about the final new heaven and new earth? Or is that talking about this era where Jesus is going to rule over His people and Israel and the church will rule with Him? Or is that talking about what Jesus accomplished already in His first coming? And some of the answer to that question is yes. It's talking about all three. And some of it is yes, but the greater fulfillment of it is, is here or, or, or here or here. For goodness sake, there's some that are obviously more here than there. But all of it's intertwined as we look at it from the Old Testament. All of it's a lump of clay where the prophetic vision they received is speaking to it as if it's one as if it's one event, and yet it's really three different events. I need to keep this lump of clay 
Play-Doh, and uh, I'll probably refer to it often when I'm struggling to get you to see what I'm saying, when I'm saying, listen, this is partly fulfilled here. He's writing about here, but there's a greater fulfillment of it coming here, and then there's a final eternal fulfillment of it coming here. So, So all of that to hopefully lead you to see how the Old Testament authors are writing. For the whole point of getting to this last point, repent for the day of the Lord in a way is now. For we're in the last days. We are. The Spirit has come. And that first coming has already occurred. Jesus Jesus has revealed God to us. God incarnate. The Word was made flesh. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 2. In these last days, God has spoken to us through His Son, through Jesus. We, we have a, a greater revelation from God than Joel even had, than Joel even gave to the people. We see the righteous holiness of God in a way that even they, they knew it, but we see it more fully through Jesus Christ and what He accomplishes on the cross to pay for our sins in order that we might be forgiven when we come to God with a broken and a contrite heart. And all of this leading to that final verse of chapter 2 that Paul quotes. Paul quotes it in Romans chapter 10 and verse 15 or 13 that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That the call tonight, no matter if you're Jew or Gentile, no matter if you're the worst sinner in the room or if you're the best sinner in the room, no matter if you're the greatest educated or the least educated, no matter if you owe more money or if you've got a huge bank account, it's whoever, we're all sinners before God, there's a day of judgment coming, the only ones that will ever make it are the ones that come to God, not in their own righteousness, the ones that simply in a broken humility, repenting of their sin, call out to God for salvation because they know the day of the Lord is coming. They know that someday God will judge. And they know the only way to avoid that judgment is the work that He did through Christ dying upon the cross for their sins and burying them in the grave. All of this tonight to say, if you've never repented and believed upon Christ, I beg you. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He is the mediator. If you've never turned to Him and repented of your sins, be warned, there's a day of judgment that is coming. Receive this invitation. Whoever calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Just as it was for them, Paul even says it is for us in the here and now. Call upon God and be saved. For all of us who are saved, we don't fear the judgment. We long Heavenly Father, we come to You and I pray You would take Your Word and just instruct and lead and convict and guide and do all that Your Word does through Your Spirit in our hearts. Sanctify Your church, Your people. Build us up in Christ. Lord, if there be any in here that aren't in Christ, I pray even now that they would just be so keenly aware of the day of the Lord, the judgment that will come, that in light of that, they may even now be awakened to the sinfulness of they have of need deliverance and salvation. Lord, as they feel the weight of their own sin and the need of salvation, I pray they see Christ and what He did for them at Calvary. The Savior who died upon a cross and shed His blood that they can be forgiven. May they turn to Him and call out to You to save them because of what He's done for them. And to save the lost, I ask in Jesus' precious name.